All right. We are going to read from Romans 13, just two verses. It's verses 8 through 10. That's three verses, actually. Sorry. Um, Verse 8, I'll just go ahead and read it to you guys. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Thanks, Christian. Good morning, everyone, again. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no. You only get one good morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 7, we'll get started in our study. We're going to pick up in verse 7 after last week spending our entire time in verse 6. And so Matthew 7, verse 7 is where we'll begin this morning. And that passage of scripture that I asked Christian to read uh, will really come into play towards the end of our message as we get towards verse 12 this morning. But while you're turning in your Bibles to verse 7, a moment of absolute terror from my life, which I know some of you enjoy more than you ought to. I was happily asleep not too long ago. It was a matter of weeks ago, uh, sleeping very soundly one night. And do you ever, do you ever get that? I mean, you're in deep sleep, but you're kind of just starting to become aware of something around you. And it's a creepy feeling. I didn't pick this out for Halloween, by the way. This pertains to the text. Okay, so I had this creepy feeling. Something was wrong. And so I'm facing this direction, and I roll over, and I open my eyes, and all I see is the silhouette of a child standing next to our bed in the complete darkness like this. After my brief cardiac event, I discovered why my daughter had come to wake us up. It was because she couldn't sleep and felt that we didn't deserve it either. Um, but she had, <laughs> she had had too much sugar or whatever the night before. So she wasn't sleeping. And, and you parents, you've experienced this, that soft rap on the door. And by the way, that's why we keep the door closed so that the kids don't walk in and look like some horror movie scene, just standing there silhouetted, staring at you. You know, it's like, how did your hair get dripping? And there's like seaweed coming off you. Even with the door out of the deep. Door shut. There have been so many times as a parent that the kids have come knocking in the middle of the night. They're sick. They don't feel well. Maybe something scared them. Maybe they had an odd question about life. But, you know, they show up at your door and there's this soft knock. Something's up. And they come to us, not because they want to be bothersome, not because they want to cause a problem. The kids come in the middle of the night to mom and dad. Why? Safety, comfort, encouragement. There's all of these things that they know at that point that they need mom or dad for. They need to come to us for these things. And that's normal. That should be normal. Our kids should be comfortable to come to us and to receive comfort and care and protection. That should be something that doesn't surprise us. It should always seem very appropriate. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, like, that's something that they should just know. If they don't feel comfortable coming to us for comfort and care and all those things, then I think we've done something wrong. So in that vein, why don't we come to God that way? Why don't we view God in the same way as our children view us? Coming to him, looking for that comfort, looking for that, that protection, looking for that wisdom and that guidance. Why don't we come to God in that way when we feel 
broken and distressed, knocking on the door in search of his strength and wisdom. My kids don't want to take advantage of me in those moments. They're not trying to ruin my night or give me cardiac arrest. They need me. They need me in those moments. And you know what's interesting is I'm going to miss those moments. I'm going to miss those moments when my kids need me in that way. And I think in a lot of ways we go by those parts of our lives and we miss them for what they are. An opportunity to be a picture, an image, if you will, of our Heavenly Father in their lives. They don't have to bribe me. They don't have to manipulate me to help them. They don't have to bring any kind of offering to get me to make them a sandwich or to hug them or to do something that's caring for them. I don't need to be bribed. Why? Because we love our kids. We care for our kids. We want what's best for them. We want them to rest. And some of us are like, I just want to get back to sleep. Okay, I understand that. But but in all honesty, if our kids are distressed, we want to help them and they don't have to manipulate us to do that. And that's important. They need us. Jesus has called us at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7 to be non-judgmental, non-condemning people. And then in verse 6, as we studied last week, he called us to be discerning. As non-judgmental, discerning Christians, this is the natural next step. We see Jesus now direct our attention in this next set of verses to persisting in our need and our reliance upon God. Now we're called to persist in this, not just to, okay, I'm not this type of person or I am this type of person, but as that person that God has called me to be, do I persist in my relationship and in my connection to God? Am I relying upon him? Would my life fall apart without him? He wants us to understand that God is our father. And here's something that we need to remember. He wants to bless us. God wants to do good things in your life. Now, let me qualify that. That doesn't mean he wants you to live your best life now. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there. God wants his goodness, his will, and his plan lived out in your life. We're really bad at seeing that from our own perspective. But what we can gain from the scriptures, what we can gain from reliance and relationship with Jesus is a perspective on what is good for us, what his plan is for us, and acceptance of what we're going through in light of that end. That end of God's goodness being played out in our lives in a real and tangible way. We need to remember that God our Father wants to bless us, that he wants to give good things to his kids, and that he's more than willing to come to our aid and care for us. Rather than attempting to twist or manipulate God through our performance, through the things that we're doing, through how we live our lives, or how ridiculously good-looking we are, We should all chuckle. Jesus invites us to trust his goodness by simply asking him for what we need. He says, stop trying to to twist and manipulate. Just come and ask what you need. Ask me, come to me. This is not a prescription to get what we want. Please don't hear that. And as we go through the text, you're going to hear that over and over again. This is not a prescription to get what you want. This is a description of relying on the father for all that we need. It's not a prescription for wants. It's a description of a lifestyle for the needs. And we rely upon God to know what those things are. So Matthew chapter 7, that sets us up. Verses 7 through 12. Let's talk about this text together. 
I'll read from verse 7 all the way down through verse 12, and you can follow along. Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount and says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Coming from the prior section, it makes a lot of sense, I think, as Jesus reveals the hypocrisy of being judgmental, the importance of being discerning and intentional with the gospel, this text has a very powerful push behind it because thematically, Jesus has shown the way of the world to be judgmental and forceful. He's shown the way of the world, which is not God, not the way he does things, to be judgmental and very forceful about what they want and what they're attempting to do. And yet, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. You don't need a battering ram. You don't need some very well-crafted, manipulative case to make. He says, ask and seek and knock. Life in the kingdom of God is simplified in these ways. The 18th century poet Richard Glover suggests that a child, if his mother is near and visible, asks if she's neither, he seeks, And while if she's inaccessible in her room, he then knocks. Now, I think that that's helpful, but I think it's more important to note that all three verbs in this text are present imperative, which means they reveal the persistence that we should make our requests to God on a moment-by-moment basis. It's not just like, okay, so where is God in proximity to me so I know what I need to do? Am I in an ask situation? Am I in a seek situation? No, we live ever existing in a continual cycle of ask, seek, knock. Because it's a life situation. It's a moment-by-moment thing that we are looking and seeking and asking and longing for God to open the right doors in our lives. It's something that we persist in always. It's a reliance issue. All three of these things are active ways in which we're living out our lives moment by moment. We have to view verses 7 through 10 through the lens of verse 11. It's one of those rare times me as a very linear person, I like to go 1 to 2 to 3 to 4. I like to walk right on down the line. Some of you are linear. We get each other. And so that's kind of how we function. But in order to understand verses 7 through 10, we really need to understand verse 11. Because so many people, and I shared this with our prayer group this morning, I said, you know, I don't know if there's a chapter of the Bible that I have heard misinterpreted as often by non-believers as Matthew 7. I've heard this chapter misinterpreted by non-believers so many times. Well, I asked God and he didn't answer me. I was looking for him. I couldn't find him. I was knocking and he wouldn't open the door. They have all these, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. It's the only time you'll get a non-believer to quote, you know, King James to you, right? And so people know these things and they like to throw them out, but they're throwing them out without context. And here's the context of verses seven through 10. It's verse 11. And Jesus says this, if you then who are evil, Jesus called you evil. We are. You realize that? The heart is desperately wicked. Now, we are new creations in Christ, but we didn't do anything to achieve that. So we are evil in and of ourselves. 
He says, know how to give. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, we understand that affection, we understand that loving care, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If we understand what it means to give goodness and good things and to care for our kids, how much more a perfect and holy heavenly Father? The context of ask, seek, and knock is that God wants to give us good things from his perspective. It's his good things, not things that I would consider to be good in my evil flesh, which is why I need to rely on him to define for me what good is. If we're going to talk about the good things, we need to understand this. The only reason we're able to identify anything as good is because God himself is the definition of good. God is the definition of good. And not only that, he creates and gives to us good things as an extension of himself. He is the one who defines the whole thing. Jesus explained it this way to a a rich young ruler that we're very, very familiar with the story of in Mark chapter 17, verses 17 through 18. It says this, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. God's the only one that's good. Now, Jesus is theologically checking this guy. Like immediately, he's theologically checking him. Why are you calling me good? He's asking the right questions. Really quick, this is an aside. Isn't Jesus fun to read? Like to read his interactions with people, the Pharisees come up and ask a question and he doesn't answer their question. He just says something totally different. You're like, is he just ignoring their question? Yes, he's ignoring their question and going right to the heart of the issue. Jesus looks at this guy and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And Jesus says, why are you calling me good? Let's get to the heart of the issue. You misunderstand what good is. Why? Because he had lots of physical good things, lowercase g, things that he considered to be good that were idols above God. And so Jesus says, let's redefine what good is. Let's talk about what good actually is. And then you're going to be able to understand the good things that God wants to give to you. We need God to be the definition of this. Good and bad are not up to your judgment or mine. Now we can discern between the two, but only from God's perspective. And so I think these are things that we understand. I think these are ideas that we get. But the problem is... We still long for things that aren't necessarily good. We still strive and go after things that may not necessarily be good. We would talk about it. What's the most important and valuable thing in this room or things uh, in this room? Let's say nouns. What's the most valuable nouns in this room according to God? People. Human beings in this room are the most valuable thing. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save a pew. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save a screen or carpet. He died on a cross to save us from our sin. Amen? Now we get that, and we understand that God has said that's what's good. The finished work on the cross that Jesus accomplished, that's what's good. And yet we leave here, and how much of our ambition is aimed at other things that we label as good things that we, and I'm not saying that the things in our lives don't matter. I'm saying 
the things in our life only matter because they are good gifts from God. And if we prioritize them over him, we have an idolatry problem. And we need to be honest about that. We need to be real about that. If we believe that God is the judge of what's good and bad, it shapes how we ask him for things. Now I'm not asking him for that publisher's clearinghouse take, right? Is that still around? Is publisher's clearinghouse still a thing? Remember that? Get it in the mail. My mom was like, this is the big one. This is it. This is going to fix everything. Wrong. It's not, <laughs> it's not going to fix your life. You guys, if we believe that God is the judge of what's good and bad, it shapes our asking. First John 5, verses 14 through 15 says this. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. John isn't running around in circular thinking. He's saying this. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, this really starts to shape the way that we think when we understand that he says according to his will. And James follows this up, not only encouraging us to trust in God to be good, but when we don't and we attempt to define for ourselves what good and bad is, we're reminded by James of what that looks like. In James 4, 2 through 3, he says, you desire and you don't have. He says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. And verse 3 says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. By the way, your pleasures is the definition of what you think is good. And he says, this is why you're not getting what you want. Because you're asking so you can spend it on yourselves. To be at pleasure and, and happy in your life with the things instead of having joy in your heart because God is the one who's sustaining you. I don't know if you guys have realized this, but when you get something new, it's only cool for a little while. Our kids teach us this every Christmas. Every Christmas. Now, we just, as we get older, we're like, oh, yeah, adults, we don't do that kind of thing. No, you just buy more expensive stuff. And so it may last a little longer, but for most of us, it's like, yeah, I got this new boat like two years ago. It's pretty cool, I guess. It's really cool, says the guy who has no boat. And they're like, not compared to that. Look at that thing. That thing goes twice as fast as my boat. I could put five fishing poles around that thing. That'll make me happy. No, it won't. Because there's a boat out there you can put six fishing poles on. You guys, it's always something. It's always something. None of it satisfies and a lot of times we, we get into this rut, we get into this place where we have this giant hole in our life. We're like, what's wrong? Nothing satisfies. And we even feel guilty about it because God's given us so many things. And we're like, why am I not satisfied with this? Because you're seeking for satisfaction in the thing instead of the God who created it. He is the only one that can fill that hole. And we get the concept, but are we walking it in our lives? Do we have an attitude of continually asking God for good things and not focusing on the things themselves, but looking to the Father for the satisfaction of my needs, of what I need in this life? We cannot ask without the presumption, or with the presumption, excuse me, that we'll always understand the heart and mind of our good Father. 
Some of us are gravely disappointed with the things or the, the, uh, the situations or the circumstances of our lives because we don't want this for us. I do not want that for me. That is pain. I don't want that situation for me. Surely I could be much more effective in this life, God, if I look like Brad Pitt. I could serve you so much better. You're like, ew, Brad Pitt, whoever's hot. All right, fine, that's whatever. But like, you understand what I'm saying. You guys, as our Heavenly Father, sometimes his answer to our requests is going to be no. It's going to be no. Now think about this. We know that, but we don't like it any more than we did when we were kids, right? No good parent is going to say yes to their kids all the time. In fact, some good parents have to say no often. Can I go play in the street? You know, (laughs) don't think of the morbid answer. As a good parent that loves your kid, no. You know, like you guys, we, we understand this, that no parent always says yes to their child. Sometimes saying no is proof of our love. It's proof of your love to say no because it's our job to care for our kids and it's our Heavenly Father's job to care for His kids. And so when He says no, do we receive that from Him? When we ask, are we asking according to His will or for ourselves? It's not about what I want. When we ask God in prayer, our longing ought to always be His kingdom come, His will be done. That's how we ask, God, can you do this? Can you, can we have this? Can we just, but it's about your kingdom. I want to use this for your kingdom. Or is it, this would really make me happy. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. Oh, he's so profound. C.S. Lewis wrote, prayers are not always granted. This is not because prayer is a weaker kind of causality, but because it is a stronger kind. When it works, he puts that in quotes, at all, it works unlimited by space and time. That is why God has retained a discretionary power of granting or refusing it, except on that condition, prayer would destroy us. That's profound. Except on the condition that God has complete discretionary power over prayer, our prayers, if the answer was always yes, would destroy us. Church, oftentimes we pray and ask God for things that would wreck our lives. Sometimes the worst thing that could happen to us is for God to say, okay, to something that I'm asking him for in the flesh. Not in the spirit, in the flesh. And that's a reset button for a lot of us. That's convicting for a lot of us because it's like, what am I, what am I asking God for right now? What am I seeking for him to do? What door am I knocking on that God's saying, no? by his grace, is saying no. According to his great mercy, is saying no. We cannot ask amiss. We're the children of the Father, and we need to trust him that he wants to do good things, that he wants good things for us. And whenever we misunderstand that, you guys, we misunderstand his heart. And God doesn't condemn us for that. He calls us back to the center of it. He calls us back into a right relationship. We have to ask according to his will and ask for him to give us wisdom so that we can understand how to walk in his goodness, not our own version, which is evil. 
That's what makes us evil is walking in our own version of what right and wrong is. Do you want to know what evil looks like? A society that says, I get to define what right and wrong is. That's evil. Because it's not accountable to anything. It's not accountable to anyone but what you choose for it to be. And God is the only one who decides what right and wrong is, what good and bad is. When we come to the Lord and we ask him, Lord, I need your help. And we keep that open. We say, what do you want me to do? James 1.5 says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. You're like, ah, I just really want the thing. I don't want the wisdom. No, you need the wisdom first. We need the wisdom of God first. All the situations in our life, whether it's dealing with what's going on in your kid's school right now, your job, the church you're serving in, whatever's going on, you need God's wisdom for that situation. You don't need to operate on your own wisdom. And when we go to the Lord and we say, can you give me your wisdom so I know what to do here? You're not asking for the full vision of what needs to happen. You're asking for his discernment. God, give me your discernment for this. There are so many situations day in, day out that I don't know what to say or how to handle. I don't know what to do. You're like, you're the Bible answer man. You're the pastor. You have all the answers right there in your book. It's like, you have the book too. (laughs) Like, you understand that like, I'm trying to follow God's wisdom for my life just the same as you are. And trust me, I pray desperately that the Lord gives me wisdom to speak into your life. But if that's not what I'm asking for, we're all in trouble. And if you're not asking it for yourself, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and James in that passage is not just speaking to pastors. He's talking to the whole church. If you lack wisdom, ask. God will give it to you generously and ungrudgingly. If you seek after it, you're going to find it. Seek and you will find, Jesus says, wisdom herself. Speaking in Proverbs 8 verses 17 he says i love those who love me and those who search for me will find me i love those who love me wisdom speaking and those who search for me find me are we seeking our own desires or are we looking for the wisdom and goodness of god even if that means we have to lay down our wants for the sake of his glory you realize that the answer to glorifying god in our lives is quite possibly less Less than what we currently have. And more of his kingdom. Isn't it interesting how often he works through the weakest? He loves to work through the weak. I totally agree with what scripture says that God loves an underdog. He loves an underdog. He loves people that no one would expect things would come from. And he'll use that person so that he receives the glory. So many times the people we look up to the most are people that have put themselves on that own pedestal. They're drawing attention to themselves. I'm convinced that the greatest saints in the kingdom, you won't know their faces or names because they spent time in prayer. They spent time doing the things that weren't seen. It's just like Jesus talked about in Matthew 6 when he says, practice your righteousness in secret. Do the things that you do in private. He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you for that. He says, don't stand on the street corners and in the synagogues like the Pharisees praying with your hands up there. None of that. It's really cool to do that in this room. 
But like he says, don't do it like that. He says, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to the father who sees in, in the secret, in the quiet place. And he says, and then live out your life in a way that people see you asking, seeking and knocking, looking for God's wisdom. You know, it really does take us back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first verse that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5. The first person that he blessed, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that their spirit is wretched and broken without God. Blessed are those for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is theirs because those who are impoverished in spirit, those who are broken, those who are afraid, those who don't know what to do, they come to the door of the kingdom and they, they knock. God, I need your help. I'm completely wasted. I haven't done anything good. I'm broken. And he says the door will be opened. When you come with that impoverished spirit seeking for the Lord to be the one who's glorified in your life, that door opens. And it's your Father. We recognize our need for Him on a moment-by-moment basis that we stand at the door and we knock, seeking for Him. We're agreeing that we're built with a need for Him. D.A. Carson said this, This asking is an asking for the virtues Jesus has expounded. This seeking is a seeking for God. This knocking is a knocking at heaven's throne room. And Jesus says this in verse 9 of chapter 7, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? When you ask, when you seek, when you knock, your father in heaven is not going to open that door. And you say, I'm hungry, I need bread. And he's not going to give you a rock. He says, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. He says, you guys get this as human beings that have fallen, that have been corrupted in your flesh by sin. And he says, how much more your perfect, holy, heavenly father, by which we know and understand what good is, what love is. God is love, right? First John chapter four. God is love. And so if he's the reason that we understand what love and what goodness is, then we understand that he gives good gifts. How much more, Jesus says in verse 11, will your Father in heaven give good things to those who who ask him? This reliance upon the Father from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to the end is being taught continually. Are you relying? Are you trusting? Are you holding fast to him? Is he your everything? Jesus is stripping our vices from us. He's stripping and breaking the idols right in front of our very eyes. Jesus is insisting that both entrance into the kingdom and progress in the kingdom require God's saving hand. Not only do we enter the kingdom of heaven through the saving hand of God, but our progress and our sanctification through this Christian life requires his saving hand on a moment-by-moment basis. I think a lot of us look at the gospel and its interaction with our lives, and we think of it as, I got saved when I received the gospel. You understand that was the beginning of your gospel journey. That every day of your life, as you become more aware of your sinfulness, as you become more aware of God's holiness, as those gaps widen, 
They kind of go in different directions. Like God's so holy and I'm so broken that the gospel fills that empty space in between. It grows in our lives. And a lot of times we hit this place where we're like, I'm so like lost in this. It's because you are not walking in gospel awareness day in and day out. The gospel is supposed to expand in these parts of our lives. And Jesus is making us aware of this. Your reliance upon God should be stronger now than it was when you were a new believer because when you're a new believer, you were less aware. I'm more aware now of my need. I'm holding on tighter than I've ever held on before. I want to be closer to God than I've ever been before. I want to know his heart more. I I seek his face more. This isn't religiosity. It's desperation. It's absolute reliance. It's a need for him. You don't just have God in your life as part of your life. He is everything. He is everything. We are part of a body that if we are detached from, we die. He calls us one body. He calls us his church. And I've said this before, and I'll say it probably many more times. It's weird and gross to find a dismembered arm laying in a field. You're like, yeah, that would be disturbing because it doesn't belong there. Now put that in a spiritual picture. We belong together. We function together under the leadership of Christ. We are to be bound to one another in unity, functioning for the glory of God. Our need and our desperation for him should be greater than it has ever been. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 12, because of all of this, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. Notice that he doesn't use it in the negative. Do you notice that about it? It's not, if you don't want someone to do that to you, don't do it to them. A lot of times we do that with parents, right? If you don't want to be smacked by your brother, don't at first strike your brother. This is the golden rule. It's kind of backwards. Do for others what you would have them do for you. It begins before the action. It sets the mind to care for one another, to think of one another. Therefore, because of what Jesus has taught, and I wouldn't just go back to the beginning of verse 7, I'd say therefore from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to here, through chapters 5 and chapter 6, all the way up to this point. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. If you like receiving gifts, give gifts. If you like it when people speak words of encouragement to you, speak words of encouragement. It's fascinating, isn't it, how often we forget this. How often we forget to build people up because that's what we love being blessed with. It's so encouraging to me when somebody says, good job. Do I say that to others? Because it it blesses me to hear that. Do I care for others in this way? Am I invested in others? Because of what Jesus has taught with our hearts and submission to the Father and relying upon Him in His direction, what you want others to do for you, we should do for them. This is the idea of being devoted to the good in the lives of those around us, and it reaches far beyond the mere absence of harm. This is not just avoiding wishing ill against somebody, right? I'm not going to use a driving analogy, but I very easily could. I very easily could. Because instead of using against somebody how they've acted towards you, why not do for them what you would have them do for you? I tell you what, you can't live this way pridefully. You just can't. 
Humility is the only way that we're going to be able to do this. Having a very low opinion of ourselves, a low posture for our lives, that's what enables us to do for others as we would have them do for us. Because we're devoted to the good in their lives. And this reaches far beyond that mere absence of harm. It aspires toward a remarkable richness in their lives. Not simply the alleviation of their suffering. I don't just want them to not suffer. I'm trying to do the good things for them that I would appreciate. That I would be blessed by. It's a motivational change. It's the heart of God for them. Church, what Jesus wants us to desire is the good of all those around us. You realize that this reveals a massive lack of forgiveness in our lives, if we're willing to be honest. Because there are probably some people, and please don't raise your hands, there's probably a lot of us this morning that are wishing ill upon someone. That are wishing for someone to get theirs. Right? I just got to be honest with you, Mike. I want them to hurt. I've heard that. I want them to understand the pain. Like, I'm feeling a little bit of it. Like, you guys, that is a heart of bitterness. That is not the golden rule. By the way, do you know what's great about the golden rule? Jesus himself one-upped it. If there was a platinum rule, it's John chapter 15, verse 12. He says this, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. That's even bigger. That's even more convicting. You're like, I can't do this. You're like, you're right. That's why you need to ask. That's why you need to seek. That's why you need to knock. We aren't capable of this church outside of him. Outside of the filling of his spirit, I can't do the golden rule, let alone loving everyone as Jesus loved me. How did Jesus love me? It's not just for the Bible tell me so. No, it's not that. What is the, what did the Bible tell me so? He laid down his life. He died for me. He suffered torturously for me. He gave everything. And Jesus says, you want to follow my commands? Love one another just like that. Love each other just like that. And you're like, they don't deserve it. He says, while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, I died for you. You were dead in brokenness and in sin. Church, this is so convicting. There are people that I struggle with forgiving every single day that I struggle with holding bitterness against every single day. That's the evil. That's not not me being like the Lord. That's not me giving good gifts like him. That's not me caring for them as he calls us to, doing for them as I would have them do for me, let alone loving them the way that he loves me. The path of Christ leads us to seek the flourishing of all through self-sacrificial love. I want everyone around me to flourish and I'm willing to sacrifice myself to get it done because that's what Jesus did for me. Powerful words. Useless if we don't live them. Pointless if we don't change because all the words in the world will not give us the posture of a Christ-like life unless we do what they say unless we live them empowered by Christ.
in any circumstances, we're to treat others the way we desire to be treated and to love them the way Jesus has loved us. And I don't know about you guys, but right about now I need to pray because I've failed. And I don't want to fail anymore. I don't want to stand up here and say that I'm going to continue to fail. I failed and I'll keep failing, but Jesus loves me, so. That's hypocritical and pretentious. None of us should be comfortable with that. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Worship team, would you guys come up? God, I don't ever want to be comfortable with not being forgiving. I don't ever want to be free of your conviction. So Lord, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something in our hearts that we desperately need and that I know you want to do. When I ask this, I know it's something that you desire to do because your word tells us so. Lord, we confess our sin. We confess the bitterness. We confess our lack of putting you as ultimate in our lives with recognizing you. Lord, it's not a matter of you ceasing to become ultimate. You are always ultimate. You are always sovereign. But Lord, I repent of the times where I put things above you. And Lord, I pray that you would convict. And as we confess, Lord, your word tells us you're faithful and you're just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as your people here this morning are praying in their own hearts, Lord, we ask not only collectively but individually for the things that we're struggling with in our hearts right now. Would you forgive us our sin? Would you forgive us as we've fallen short? And Lord, I pray that as we take a few moments before we sing to just really let these things settle into our hearts that, God, you would just overwhelm us with your grace. Because sometimes, Lord, as we start to confess, I just recognize that there's, there's a temptation to feel condemned. And Lord, this is not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in you. This is a time to be refreshed. This is a time to be rejuvenated and encouraged and built up to be edified as we come and recognize that confession and repentance are good because they bring us to restoration. They restore us to you. And so, Lord, as we just take a few minutes individually to confess our sin, to ask for you to cleanse and to work in us yet again, Lord, just stir within our hearts the things that, that we need to say that we need to own up to. Let's just take a few minutes, church, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Just confess to the Lord. Repent. He forgives you in Christ. Receive that forgiveness. Take a moment to just commune with the Lord.